You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Okay, good morning, America. Welcome to a veteran story on AmericasWebRadio.com. I'm your host, Pete Mecca. Later in the show, I have a story to tell you about a World War II veteran, a fly boy who flew 65 combat missions behind the controls of a B-26 Marauder medium bomber bomber from his base in England. I knew this man. I wrote his story. And what a great story he has. But first, let's do this. Folks, today is Veterans Day, that special day of the year when our country pays tribute to all veterans. Believe me when I say this, we veterans have earned this special day of tribute. Many of our brothers and sisters paid for this day with their lives. And for those who did make the ultimate sacrifice, we honor their sacrifice on Memorial Day. But for us, the ones who live to celebrate celebrate Veterans Day, we remember our fallen brothers and sisters every day of the week. They still live through us, we, the lucky ones who made it home. I knew a lot of the soldiers whose names are on that long black granite wall in Washington, D.C., and we who remain alive will never forget them. Approximately 2.7 million men and women served in Vietnam. Approximately 600,000 of us are still alive. During the Korean War, approximately 5.7 million men and women served. Ironically, the Korean War veterans still alive outnumber my brothers and sisters who served in Vietnam, most likely due to our accelerated death rate due to Agent Orange. It is estimated that as of today, about 2 million Korean War veterans are still with us. Which brings us to World War II, the greatest generation. Of the 17 million men and women who served, less than 325,000 remain with us. And the greatest generation is leaving us at a rate of around 1,150 each and every day. Within just a few years, we will hear of the last World War II veteran reporting for his final inspection. The final inspection. For those of you who have never heard of the final inspection, let me recite what the phrase actually means. And the soldier stood before God, which must always come to pass. He hoped his shoes were shining just as brightly as his brass. And God said, Step forward, soldier. How should I deal with you? Have you always turned the other cheek to my teachings? Have you been true? The soldier squared his shoulders and said, No, Lord, I I reckon I ain't. You see, those of us that carry guns can't always be a saint. I had to work just about every Sunday. And at times, (laughs) my language was pretty rough. And sometimes, I had to be violent. Because this old world is still pretty tough. But I never turned down a cry for help. 
And at times, I shook with fear. And Lord, please forgive me, for I have wept unmanly tears. I know I don't deserve a place among your people here. You see, (laughs) they never wanted me around, except to calm their fears. But if you do have a place for me, it doesn't have to be so grand. You see, I never had or asked for much. But if you don't, well, I'll understand. And God said, Step forward, soldier. You've done your duties well. Walk softly on heaven's streets. You've already served your time in hell. You've already served your time in hell. And they have served their time in hell from Valley Forge to the shores of Tripoli, from the fields of Gettysburg to the fields of Flanders, from Pearl Harbor to Inchon and the Quezon, from the hot sands of Iraq into the cold mountains of Afghanistan. The greatest generations have always been there, always ready to answer their call to duty, yet always knowing the next greatest generation is only one war away. And knowing, too, that they may be only one battle away from being called home for their own final inspection. The greatest generations, you betcha, they're called American veterans. Today, I will relate to you one story, the story of just one man, just one of many heroes of World War II, an American flyboy who told me regarding his 65 combat missions, I was just doing my job. Richard Dick Bailey reported for his final inspection early this month on November 2nd. Dick wanted to be on my show to tell you his story. To brag about his beloved B-26 Marauder, he just wanted to live long enough to make his date on my show. He didn't quite make it. So today, I'm going to tell you his story. A real hero's story. The story of a man who was just doing his job. Richard Dick Berry was born in Johnson City, New York. In 1922, I believe, by his first day, first birthday, <clears throat> the Bailey family had reloaded to Birmingham, New York. Dick recalled, I graduated from high school in 1940, then applied and received a slot into a tool-making apprentice course with GE in Schenectady, New York. I was at a buddy's house listening to classical music on radio on December 7th. 1941. That's when the news broke on the radio about the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. I said to my friend Vic, how could they do this to us? Then I made a prediction. They're going to regret this, and in time, by golly, they did. Vic applied for aviation cadet training program to train as a pilot, navigator, or bombardier. He said, I enlisted in March of 1942. They wanted me to go in unassigned. 
But when I asked what the heck that meant, they said I'd be marching, learning how to salute, transition to the military. And I replied, no way. Nope. I'm in the defense industry, so I can wait. Contact me when you have an opening in the cadet program. Well, amazingly, they agreed, and they called Dick nine months later for aviation cadet training. He first went to Syracuse, New York for a fiscal, then to Nashville, Tennessee for the first round of aviation training. Asked if the assignment was his first time in the South, <laughs> Dick replied, yep. Asked his views on the South, they replied, they were part of the United States of America. Enough said. Okay, type of training. Well, we had physical training mostly, the history of the service, plus determining which ones would be assigned to what job. Pilot, navigator, or bombardier. I requested pilot training, and they agreed. Dick paused for just a second and said, wait a minute, let's go back a bit. When I was just 13 years old, I was the backup helper for a neighbor's kid who had a newspaper route. When he graduated from high school, I took over his route. He had to be 14, but I was just 13. But they sort of ignored that. I also worked on a milk truck, delivering 300 quarts of milk each morning. I did most of the delivery. The driver only helped on double deliveries. I delivered paper six days a week, but still had to deliver milk on Sunday morning. After the milk run, I'd hitchhike to the local airport. Jimmy Doolittle was my childhood hero. I loved aviation from the get-go. One of the instructors at the airport asked me if I'd like to work for him, cleaning the planes, selling tickets for rides, and just helping out. He said he didn't have the money to pay me, but he could pay me with free flying lessons. Long story short, I trained on 50 horsepower J2 Piper Cubs, then moved up 5 horsepower to 55 horsepower J3 Piper Cubs. I soloed when I was 17 years old. So when I was in primary flight training, I didn't tell a soul that I had flying time. I knew I could fly. I had no problem with it. So I did very well. From Nashville, Tennessee to Maxwell Field, Alabama for two months of pre-flight training. Dick recalled there was a heavy emphasis on physical conditioning and courses in airplane mechanics, Morse code, which I never used, and meteorology from Maxwell to Lakeland, Florida for two months of flight training on the legendary biplane, the PT-17 Stearman. I've flown that plane. I love it to death. Dick said, I like the Stearman, he said. It was a good airplane. Very stable, easy to fly. But about 50% of the cadets didn't make it. Anybody, according to Dick, can learn to fly. But they couldn't keep up with the two-month training pace. From Lakeland to Cortland Army Airfield in Alabama. Well, another two months of flight training, 
this time in the Volte BT-13 Valiant, better known as a Volte Vibrator. I'm going to explain to you why they called the BT-13 Valiant the Volte Vibrator. It received its nickname Vibrator for several reasons. At stall speed, the plane shook violently. The canopy would vibrate during stressful maneuvers. During takeoff, it roared so loud that the windows on the base would vibrate, and the propeller would vibrate in high pitch. I've heard that from every World War II pilot that ever flew a Volk T uh, Valiant. It was, uh, let's just say it was loud, okay? <laughs> it continued. According, we practice cross-country flying and instrument flying under the hood training. I wanted to be a fighter pilot, but I was six foot tall. I was too tall to be a fighter pilot. The limit was 5'10 for a fighter pilot, so I was destined for bombers. And I've heard that from every World War II pilot, and I was surprised to really find out that the fighter pilots were normally very short because they could fit into the cockpit where pilots like Jimmy Stewart were too tall to be fighter pilots. All right, folks, we are going to our first break. Stand by. We will turn to uh, Dick Betty's fabulous story in just a few minutes. McAllister's Auto Transport is a privately held company celebrating our 75th anniversary this November, specializing in enclosed-only transportation to the OEM, personal snowbird market, and our favorite market of all is the collector market. Give us a call at 800 748-3160, or you can reach us on the web at mccollisters.com, and that's M-C-C-O-L-L-I-S-T-E-R-S.com. Large enough to handle all of your transportation needs, small enough to provide you the old town, old school service that you come to expect when you're moving your baby. Whether cruising the strip at a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. I want to remind everybody that uh, this is Veterans Day, and if you would really like a treat, put on your plans if you're living in Atlanta or if you're traveling to Atlanta. The Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. It's right across the street from the Gold Dome, the Capitol. And uh, it's it's something that everybody should go to and read up. And they have postponed their induction ceremony, which was scheduled uh, actually several days ago in Columbus, Georgia, and uh, they had to postpone the inductee ceremony until a later date because of the uh, virus. But we will be letting you know when that date has been set. And uh, in the meantime, though, take the time to go by the Floyd Building and take a look at the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. Uh, Rick White, Colonel Rick White, is a director, and he has done a marvelous job, he and Paul Langer, and uh, they have just done a 
it's so good that other states are copying it. So that tells a story right there. We'll be back with Pete right after a couple of more announcements. And uh, stay tuned. I love the story. And, uh, Pete, I loved uh, your poem that you read. Uh, that was great. Be back in just a moment. If you live to serve and want to make an even bigger difference, consider joining the U.S. Army. With training in fields like medical care, linguistics, and engineering, an Army career can amplify your efforts with humanitarian opportunities all over the world. Plus, you'll receive competitive pay and incredible benefits, so you'll be taken care of, too. Learn more at GoArmy.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Okay, folks, we're back with the story of Richard Dick Bailey, World War II combat pilot. He flew the B-26 Marauder, medium bomber. He was trained in Cortland Army at Cortland Army Airfield, Alabama, and from there he went to Stuttgart, Arkansas, for twin engine training. He said we flew the Beechcraft, the Beechcraft A-10 Wichita. I had no problem with the twin engine instruction. We were there about two months. Each train assignment meant about 70 hours in the air. And then from Stuttgart, Arkansas, to Boxdale Field out uh, Louisiana, he said, finally, finally, I got a B-26 Marauder. That was another two months of training. I liked the B-26 Marauder, although it was known as the Widowmaker, or instead of B-26, they call it the B-Crash. It was hard to handle, folks. I've read about that plane. You had to fly it. He said, I went in as a replacement to Tampa, Florida, where it was said of the cadets, plan a day in Tampa Bay. <laughs> the B-26 was plagued with a few problems. For instance, the two props had to have fully charged batteries. If not, the plane would lose pitch, thus no thrust. Only one way to go, down. In other words, plan a day in Tampa Bay. January 1944. Nick said it was wintertime, so we flew the southern route to Europe. From Florida to Puerto Rico, then across the Amazon Delta to a country I can't recall. Then on down to Brazil. From Brazil to Ascension Island in the Mid-Atlantic to Liberia, then to Dakar, to Marrakesh, and on to England. We heard rumors of German ME-109 fighters possibly stationed in Spain. So he flew west for a couple hundred miles over the Atlantic, then turned north to England. That was the longest leg of the flight. Lands in Cornwall, England. They took the planes away from us at Lands in. The machine guns were stored in the bomb bay, as were two 250 gallon extra fuel tanks. We were sent on to Northern Ireland for more schooling. We had to learn the British communication systems, air and sea rescue, navigation aids, and formation flying. Then we received individual assignments. I was sent to the 322nd 
bombardment group, 9th Air Force, just north of London at Braintree. Asked about his first mission, Dick replied, I don't even remember it. I do not recall most of the missions. They were just another mission with very few standouts. Most were Pathfinder missions. That's the lead aircraft. When it dropped its payload, so did the rest of the formation. And he said we were usually above cloud cover. When a Pathfinder opened its bomb bays, we opened our bomb bay doors. When it dropped, we dropped. German fighters were reported in the area, but I never saw one until the Battle of the Bulge. Three D-Day invasion missions, the invasion of Normandy. We did a lot of pre-invasion bombing to take out the bridges from Paris to the beaches. Plus airfields, communications, ammo dumps, rail centers. Plus Churchill asked President Roosevelt to bomb the V-1 and V-2 missile sites. This we did, bombing the rocket sites. But the V-1 rocket sites were mobile, so I don't know how effective the bombing was. I know they knew we would be coming, so they'd get the heck out of the area. I guess we at least kept them moving. June 5th, 1944. The weather was terrible. The invasion was a no-go. We had to wait. That was fairly nerve-wracking. June 6, 1944, D-Day, the invasion of Normandy. Dick said, all the planes were painted with invasion stripes to hopefully keep Americans from shooting down their own airplanes. The invasion was a go, but the weather was still terrible. We were, fr- we were to fly the length of the beaches to drop bombs on fortifications and even the beaches, so the troops had ready-made foxholes. The Army Air Force rejected that plan since the bombing would be visual and so low the planes would be sitting ducks for the German gunners. It was decided to go in at a right angle. Still on visual, but we found out the ceiling over the beaches was about 250 to 300 feet. That would be suicide. We went in at 10,000 feet behind a Pathfinder. The first mission lasted over two hours. And then Dick jumped to the 50th anniversary of D-Day. He said, I, I, I went to Normandy for the 50th anniversary of the landing. I met a lot of veterans who were in the invasion. One of them told me, we were told the Air Force would be bombing the beach, so we'd have oversized foxhole for cover. He said, that was a crock. I told him the weather was bad, and a pathfinder was not nearly as accurate as GPS we have today. We knew about 4,000 Higgin boats were heading to the shore, and we knew the inaccuracies of a Pathfinder. So I was pretty sure the Pathfinder delayed bombing, uh, dropping the bombs until the last second to prevent Henny hitting our own troops. Our speed covered about 100 yards per second, and that didn't allow for any miscalculations. Talk about the aftermath 50 years later. We flew over the beach on the 50th anniversary of D-Day. You could see all the bomb craters, now overgrown with brush and grass, 
every clear about 150 to 300 yards behind enemy lines. Our bombing didn't do a bit of good for the troops coming ashore. The second D-Day mission, Dick flew three missions on D-Day. This is his second. More of the same. I didn't even know the target. We followed the lead of the Pathfinder and dropped our bombs on his cues like we always do. That was another two-hour-plus mission. His third mission on D-Day. We got a report there was a German flat car train stopped at a rail center 10 miles inland from Utah Beach. It was loaded down with panzer tanks, other armored vehicles, and equipment. We were ordered to take it out. We went on a visual at 10,000 feet, but couldn't see a thing. We circled back over the ocean, came back in at 5,000 feet, but the target was still socked in. We couldn't see a thing. We circled back again and came in at 2,000 feet. No visual. We still couldn't see a thing. Our last attempt, we came in just under the cloud base at 500 feet. Got to the rail yard. There was no train there. Either had come and gone or backed out of the rail yard knowing we were looking for it. But we did hit the rail yard and tore it up pretty good. Then we spotted the train two or three miles down the track. We reported its position, but I have no idea if it was hit late or not. That info was above my pay grade. We were bombing at such a low altitude, some of our planes were damaged by the shrapnel from our own bombs. Think about that, folks. Three missions in one day on D-Day. I interviewed uh, uh, Punchy Powell, who was a P-51 pilot on D-Day. He also flew three missions that day. He would come back, reload, wouldn't even get out of the airplane. When he finished his third flight that uh, day, Punchy Powell had to be pulled out of the cockpit because his legs were so cramped so bad he couldn't walk. This was the greatest generation. These guys did this just about every day. When you see one, you be sure to walk up and say, thank you. Thank you for your service. They're not going to be with us much longer, folks. Not much longer at all. June 6th, D-Day, plus one, one day after the invasion. I don't think we flew on D-Day plus one. Except for a maximum effort, we normally flew three squadrons with the fourth squadron on stand down. We flew rotation. Richard Dick Bay completed 65 combat missions, including the Battle of the Bulge. Now, the Germans called the Battle of the Bulge the Battle of the Ardennes. We Americans call it the Battle of the Bulge because when they pushed through, it made a bulge in our front lines. There again, the Germans attacked in bad weather. Our air cover was grounded. We, they could not assist the troops. And we will be back with that story in just a minute as Dick Betty flew during the Battle of the Bulge.
stay with us, folks. Okay, folks, I want to invite you, too, to the Johns Creek Healing Wall. It's in Newtown Park, and it's the replica of the Vietnam Veterans Wall in Washington, D.C., and everybody's invited to go to it any time, day, particularly during the day is the best time. And um, you can find your loved ones' names or friends' names on the healing wall, and uh, very shortly they're going to have a uh, computer set up where you can type in a name and it'll give you the location of... Uh, where that name is on the healing wall but it's there it's there for you and there are some fantastic stories that have come out about the healing wall so you're invited to go to john's creek newtown park and the healing wall and uh we certainly appreciate mike mazell and all that he's done to bring the healing wall to John's Creek. We'll be back with Pete and more of his World War II bomber story. I'm fascinated, Pete. A great job. We'll be back in just a few seconds. If you live Thanks, to serve sir. and want to make an even bigger difference, consider joining the U.S. Army. With training in fields like medical care, linguistics, and engineering, an Army career can amplify your efforts with humanitarian opportunities all over the world. Plus, you'll receive competitive pay and incredible benefits, so you'll be taken care of, too. Learn more at GoArmy.com. You're listening to America's okay, Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for one, listening. And it's yours. Okay, folks, we're back with the story of B-26 Marauder bomber pilot Richard Dick Bailey. Dick was in the Battle of the Bulge as a pilot. He said of the Battle of Bulge, the Germans started their offensive in bad weather, so air cover was grounded. When the skies finally cleared, everything we had was in the air. Bombers, fighters, cargo planes dropping supplies in the Bastogne. We were ordered to take out a bridge to prevent German reinforcements from joining the offensive. We were told the bridge was heavily defended. Now, ordinarily, the German air-to-ground communications was pretty good. When their anti-aircraft guns opened up, the German fighters would back off, then come back at us when their anti-aircraft guns quit firing. Well, not this time. The German fighters kept at us even as their own flat burst among us. Well, we did hit the bridge, then turned for home. I saw a P-38 lightning shoot down an ME-109. I didn't think we had P-38s except for photo recon missions. Uh, there were actually three fighter groups of P-38 lightning fighters. <laughs> anyway, we normally drop a couple thousand feet to pick up airspeed. But my tail gunner came over the radio. Here they come. A flight of German ME-109 fighters were coming at us. He described the air-to-air combat. I was flying number three spot, left of the lead plane, the Pathfinder. A German ME-109 came in close, not more than 50 feet behind the lead plane. My top turret gunner opened up. I saw the bullets puncturing in front of the cockpit, then into the engine, and back across the cockpit. Smoke and fire poured from the engine, the fighter fell away. Then my tail gunner said, he just exploded behind us. 
About that time, another German fighter pulled up between me and the lead plane. It was so bizarre. It was the weirdest thing I ever experienced. The German pilot was looking at me, and I was looking at him. I could see his square goggles. The lead plane's bombardier got into the glass nose of his plane, and his eyes were big as a half dollar when he saw the German fighter sitting between us. We have no idea why the German pilot did what he did. But he was experienced enough to know we couldn't open up our guns on him because we hit our own airplanes. Looking back on the incident, we should have opened our windows and shot at him with our 45 caliber automatic pistols. And Dick laughed at that. The whole thing lasted about 10 or 15 seconds. But it's one of the incidents in the war I'll remember for the rest of my life. Shortly after that, I saw another ME-109 crossing in front of me about 200 yards out, going from left to right. The the, the B-26 Marauders didn't have a good frontal defense, so I decided to get a few tracers out there to let him know we at least see him. The B-26 has three 50-cal machine guns on each wing with the trigger button controlled by the pilot. I opened up with a short burst. The 50 caliber fired about 800 rounds per minute per gun. So I probably got about, oh, 100 or 200 bullets or so in the air. Wouldn't know it. A puff of smoke shot from his engine, and, and he headed down in a steep dive, turning smoke all the way. As far as we know, I am the only bomber pilot in Europe to shoot down a German fighter. I'd like to make a note on that. Uh, officially, uh, Dick Betty's top turret gunner received credit for a kill. The tail gunner received a probable, and Bailey received a possible damage probable because the ME-109 he hit disappeared into the clouds. It was always hard to get verification on a so-called kill in the air combat. Now, I asked if they celebrated back at base. Dick replied, no, not really. It was just part of the job. As to describe his last mission, the 65th, well, there's not much to tell. The 64th is right before Christmas, and I didn't fly again until early January. I suspect they knew I was approaching my last mission, so they gave me a, a milk run, an easy mission. I don't even remember what the target was. Dick came home in January of 1945. He bummed around for a short time before accepting a posting to Air Orlando, Florida. He said they wanted me to be an instructor, but I told them I survived 65 combat missions and I had no wish to be killed by damn training. Orlando was basically an air taxi service. Dick flew a variety of aircraft. He even transported the female whack softball team to play the wave softball team in Tampa. He saw those flights and said, oh man, now that was enjoyable duty, flying the ladies around. He was attending the command and general staff school in Leavenworth when the war ended. With massive cutbacks in the military, Dick was offered a position as a staff sergeant 
with no flying time. He decided to leave the military and finish his education. After earning a mechanical engineering degree, he worked with IBM, Honeywell, and Univac, concentrating mostly on the manufacturing engineering of each corporation. Dick was involved in a very serious car accident in 1996, and he chose to retire. I asked him what he was doing in retirement. He said, hell, I'm enjoying life. What do you expect? After a heart attack in 2010, he moved from California to live with his son and family in Atlanta, Georgia. Asked how many grandkids he had. Dick said, I don't know. Let me count them. One, two, three, eight of them. I'm a great-grandfather, too, but don't make me count them. I asked him his final thoughts. He said, well, the German 88 anti-aircraft gun was an awesome weapon, very deadly. In hindsight, I'm a member of the greatest generation. But we did what we had to do. We just did our job. It bothers me to see the lackadaisical attitude and culture of dependency among the younger generations today. You know, if we hadn't done our job, they'd most likely be speaking German. We lost planes and we lost people. But we didn't get close to anyone. Yeah, we had friends, but not close friends. He might not be there tomorrow. And let me say this about the 26 Marauder. She was a rugged aircraft. Got you home when no other airplane could. But she was not a very forgiving aircraft. You had to be a hands-on pilot. You had to fly her. She demanded attention. Then again, most lovely ladies do. Dick Bailey, B-26 Marauder pilot. You know, folks, I've written a lot of stories about this greatest generation. As commander of the Atlanta World War II Roundtable, I've just had to attend too many funerals. It's sad that we are losing these people. There are so many stories that need to be told and we'll never hear you know, with, with them dying, so dies the truth. There's going to be revamping of history, rewriting of history. Uh, and it's going to be from other books that people do research from. With them leaving us, our last true accounts of World War II and what the greatest generation went through goes with them. You know, folks, it is... Veterans Day, and as a Vietnam veteran, I think about it every day. I think about uh, Doug Rays. Doug went to high school with me. He was a rough and tough guy. I was a flyboy type personality, earned my wings in college. While I was stepping on and off airplanes in Vietnam, Doug stepped on a landmine. He was 19 years old. 19 years old were the biggest percentage of boys we lost in Vietnam. Now think about the time that the Raleigh Bartlett Star, my hometown paper, ran an article on me. There was my front page on, I mean, my photo on the front page. 
looking good. And they were telling about what I was doing in the war effort. And right there with me on the front page was a photo of Sergeant Walter Singleton. Walter Singleton was a United States Marine in Vietnam. He was from my high school. He was killed in combat. And he earned the Medal of Honor. And there I am, the fly boy, who was normally on a clean base and clean uniform, dodges a few rockets and mortars. But unlike Walter, I didn't have to slosh through the rice paddies, didn't have to march through the jungle. All my business was done from the air, sort of like an impersonal type war. And there I am on the front page of the newspaper with a fellow classmate that had earned the Medal of Honor. I felt embarrassed. I should have been on the back page. The, um, I guess, glory should go to the guys that really deserve it. And Walter Sharp certainly deserved his. You know, I, I'm, I'm sort of straying from the subject here, but the war that I thought was very, very impersonal in, in so many ways. There was a young captain that I shot hoops with at the base gym at, at Tonson Newt. We shot just about every day. Guys would come in, come out. We always had enough to make two teams. I usually plotted the captain's missions. He was an F-4 pilot, recon pilot. He had a camera in his airplane, not guns. But one day he didn't show up. I said, well, I wonder what happened to him. But when I got to work, I found out. He took off on a recon mission, and he never came back. All we know that he was flying level. He was taking pictures of the jungle down there, trying to find the enemy. And his plane just disintegrated. We don't know if it was engine trouble. We don't know if uh, the enemy got a lucky shot at him or what. But he's still listed as missing in action. Very handsome young man. In the prime of his life, he looked like your typical fire pilot. And his life was sniffed out in Vietnam. I think about that guy very often. I think about all my brothers on that wall in Washington, D.C. And sometimes it's heartbreaking. First time I went there, I had a tear or two in my eye. Been there a lot of times since with the... Um, honor flights doesn't get any easier but sometimes like in war in combat you almost get used to it and you always know the guys that are there for the first time touching the wall they're crying like babies and you have to go over there and hold them things all right buddy and he'd point to a name and say i knew him i knew him he, he was my best friend the Marine told me, that this guy here, this guy, this name right here on the wall, he's my best friend. He died in my arms. My father said of his generation, the greatest generation, no, son, we are not the greatest generation. Yours is. The baby boomers, the greatest generation, my father said because of what we went through in the war and what we had to go through when we came home made us the greatest generation. I disagree with that. I think the veterans of all wars 
of the greatest generations. Folks, I'll be uh, right back with my closing remarks. Please stay with us. Thank you. Hi, this is Steve Ronaldo, host of the Classic Car Show on America's Web Radio. Uh, just talking to you about anti-car insurance. I think that uh, if you're looking for the best coverage for your classic car, consider J.C. Taylor Insurance. They've been our my insurer for years in this hobby and have the top rating of every, all of the insurance companies in the hobby. When you get ready for insurance, call J.C. Taylor or visit jctaylor.com on the Internet. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls of all ages, I am Roger B., host of the Locked and Loaded Show on America's Web Radio. Join me live every Tuesday at 1500 for the best in gun news, gun products, and gun politics. My name is Kyle Hayes, a motorsports student at Alfred State College. Every year, Alfred State students compete in the Great Race, which is a cross-country time endurance rally for vintage vehicles. As you can imagine, it's pretty costly. I'm asking for your help. Your donation can make it possible for these students to live their passion and promote the vintage automobile industry. Please visit our site at give.alfredstate.edu and search Great Race to learn more and help us reach our goal. Thank you. If you live to serve and want to make an even bigger difference, consider joining the U.S. Army. With training in fields like medical care, linguistics, and engineering, an Army career can amplify your efforts with humanitarian opportunities all over the world. Plus, you'll receive competitive pay and incredible benefits, so you'll be taken care of, too. Learn more at GoArmy.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Okay, folks, I'm back with you for a very special Veterans Day program. Uh, I have enjoyed today. Uh, thank you for allowing me to speak a little bit to you about Veterans Day and the veterans that I love. I have uh, thus far interviewed and written stories of over 400 of my brothers and sisters from all wars, all ranks, all branches. Uh, and they say the same thing. They wish that every young man or woman... When they get out of high school, if they're not going to trade school or uh, college or doing something useful with their lives and they uh, don't know where to go, they should go into the military or some type of program where they're helping others so that they can learn how to say yes, sir, no, sir, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am, where they can learn how to follow orders and then eventually learn how to give orders. Believe me, folks, leaders are not born. They are made. It is the character of the person. It's just like uh, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. said, don't judge a person by their color or their race. Judge a person by their character. And some of the best characters in, in many different ways come from the United States military. I think Congress right now has an approval rating of about 15%. The most admired group of people right now is the United States military. Their rating is something like 85 or 90 percent. And believe me, they have earned it. You know, my final words today, I know a lot of you folks don't know who I am. I have uh, one book out called Veterans, Stories from America's Best. And I have another book coming out in about two weeks. It's called Fights Like a Girl. It's Women Warriors Past and Present about time the ladies got their proper recognition too and believe me 
there have been some real heroines from the United States military and other militaries, too. So who am I, really? Uh, you know, you listen to me on America's Web Radio. It's true that I'm a journalist, an author, a speaker, a Vietnam veteran. I still serve as the commander of Atlanta World War II Roundtable. I still hold memberships in several veteran-related organizations. And I'm a very outspoken veteran advocate. But, you know, that's what I do. That's not who I am. This is who I am. I am not politically correct. I stand for the national anthem, and the only time I take a knee is to worship God. I still salute old glory, and I still recite the Pledge of Allegiance with conviction. And I continue to adhere to my oath to defend this country against all enemies, foreign and domestic. I support the First Amendment, the right to free speech. As long as your free speech does not infringe upon my free speech. I support the Second Amendment, our right to keep and bear arms. If we ever give up that right, we will soon see our other rights gradually disappear. That's the nature of politics. That's the nature of politicians. And I trust in God, not politicians. You know, folks, you may know someone who will be offended if you tell them who I really am. Tell them how I think. Tell them what I believe about our country. And if they say they are offended by that way of life, well, please tell them for me that I don't give a hoot in hell if they are offended. That's who I am. That's who you listen to every Wednesday at 10 o'clock on AmericasWebRadio.com. I do want to thank uh, David Moxley. He's the uh, owner and station manager. He gave me the opportunity to do this. I love it. I love telling the stories of my fellow veterans, my brothers and sisters. Um, We need about, I don't know, maybe 50,000 more peeps out there because I certainly don't get to all the veterans, and my stories appear in newspapers once a week. That's 52 veteran stories a year. 52 veterans don't even cover my neighborhood. We need more stories out there. We need more guys telling their stories. And let me let me tell all you veterans out there listening in, if you haven't told your story, do so. If your family doesn't know your story, be sure they know your story before you pass too. Before you report for your final inspection, let your family know what you did. You do not have to get into the blood and gore. If that was your forte in war, you don't have to go there. You can tell your five-year-old grandchild that, well, I was in, in Vietnam with first airborne at Chu Lai or wherever. That five-year-old can go on Google and find out what you did. You don't have to tell them much. These kids are a lot smarter than I am. It always upsets me going to the library and see a kid barely out of diapers pounding on a keyboard and knows more than I do about computers. But tell your story. It needs to be told. 
There are uh, national archives that you could uh, record your story to. The Atlanta Vietnam Veterans Business uh, Association, they will record your story for posterity. Uh, you did your job, man and lady. Don't let your story leave with you. You are a role model, whether you want to accept that or not. You are a role model. When I make presentations at these schools, these kids are hungry for this knowledge. It's not taught in schools anymore. And believe it or not, the teachers are even hungry for the knowledge. They don't know much about the military. They don't know much about our wars. They don't know much when the history books has about a paragraph or two pages dedicated to World War II. These kids are hungry for it. I made a presentation at a middle school in social, a social circle once. And at the presentation, I saw a, a middle school kid, boy, talking to his teacher in the back. And I sort of hesitated, and here they come. And the teacher said, sir, he just wanted to talk to you for a minute. And I said, sure, sure. And the boy stuck out his hand and shook my hand. He said, thank you, sir. I've never met a real hero before. Maybe made tears come to my eyes. I, I mean, you know, I'm no hero. But to these kids, we are. And to these kids, we are role models. And our kids need role models today. The gangsters, the rap music, the protesters in the streets, they get all the publicity. You need to get out there and find your own publicity. You need to get out there and help these kids understand the true cost of freedom. Freedom is not free. It never has been. And going back in our history, so far over 2 million Americans have paid the ultimate sacrifice so that you and I can argue about politics, argue about religion, so that we can live in a country where freedom of thought is the best freedom we have. And we do have forces within our own country now who would like to uh, lessen that a little bit. No one's going to tell me what to say, and I hope you don't allow them to tell you what to say or what to think or tell you not to respect the flag, tell you not to respect the military. Listen, I worship God. I don't worship politicians. I really don't trust the federal government. I learned that lesson in Vietnam. But I love my country. I love what it stands for. I love the people of this country. We are diversified. My gosh, we are still the melting pot of the world. It always fascinates me that people come to America to get away from dictatorships and uh socialism and communism, and then they get over here and they want to return the United States to whatever they came from. Why they come to the United States in the first place. I never hear of people leaving the United States to go somewhere else. Yeah, I've always wondered what happened to all of those uh, movie stars that were going to leave the country if. Well, I guess they ran out of money, Dave, because they're not making movies anymore. <laughs> Well, I, somehow or the other, I can't feel too sorry for him. I want to add something to what you've just been saying, and that is the fact that you you have described America's Web Radio uh, almost uh, 
like yourself, uh, we we realize the, and I feel like that uh, we wouldn't be having some of the problems we have today if we were really teaching history and really teaching in our public schools and private schools. Our history books are a joke, and kids, you know, we're doomed to repeat what we don't learn, you know, and don't understand about history. So uh, that's why we do so many Vietnam, or not just Vietnam, but veteran shows, and also we, uh, we always salute our first responders. I've been there, done that, and, you know, anyone that is in a service position deserves a salute. And no matter where you are, the airport, the train station, or wherever you happen to be, you see someone that's wearing a veteran's cap or is in uniform, like my son, that I dearly love and respect so much for becoming a major in the Air Force, in your Air Force. And he's he's there ready to serve. He's on active duty. He's ready to serve and defend your country, my country, and your country, Pete. And, uh, you know, we have the greatest military in the world and the greatest veterans in the world. I, I've told this story a number of times, and and I'll bet you if you weren't, you, you would be the first one too, Pete. If we were called by the government and age made no difference, but they needed us, I don't know of a veteran that I've had in studio or talked to that wouldn't raise their hand and said, I'm ready. You tell me where to go. To defend this country and its all enemies, foreign and domestic. Yes, sir. And I can tell you this, too. I, I wish they would teach more history. Uh, in the schools, but also we need the kids to be taught civics. Yes, sir. They need to, they need to learn about our government. They need to learn how this system operates. If you don't understand a system, uh, that's why the military takes people at a young age. They break them down, build them back up, because if you're not trained properly for war, you're going to get yourself killed. If you're not properly trained to become a United States citizen, you're just going to be a lackadaisical person walking around the street saying, hey, can I join your movement? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Pete, with that being said, we got to cut it off. So uh, thank you for another great show, and I look forward to that email you're going to send me. Okay. Thank you, Dave. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Join me next week. Bye-bye. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.